welcome to Language Chats. This is a podcast for language lovers in Australia and beyond where we share our experiences as well as stories from other Australians of learning, working with and using other languages. I'm Penny. And I'm Beck. And today we are going to be starting our episode a little bit differently to usual and we'll explain, well, You'll find out in a little while why we're, why we're doing this, but we're going to start our episode today with an acknowledgement of country because we have a special guest with us and we're going to be talking about Indigenous languages today. That's Indigenous languages of Australia. So for anybody who hasn't experienced an acknowledgement of country before, it's a way of paying respect to the original custodians of the land in Australia. Um, and Carla, who is our guest, hi Carla. Hello. <laughs> We're going to get Carla to start off today um, and then we'll introduce her properly in just a moment. Yama, Gullering Derebin, Gullering Awaba, Gullering Yango, Gullering Waraba, Ninganara Burai Nura, Yama, Darkanyung Nura, Yama, Wadawurang Nura, Yama, Wurunjiri Nura. So we are speaking from the lands of the Darkenjung, the Wadarung and the Wandri people and we wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. We pay our respects to the wisdom and knowledge holders and the storytellers of the ancestors of these lands who have cared for and lived spiritually as one for many generations with our environment. We would also like to pay our respects to their elders past and present and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be with us today. So thank you both for that introduction um, to today's episode. And Carla, welcome to Language Chats. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. It's great to be here. So Carla, Carla Zuluaga is an aspiring linguist and a lifelong learner. She holds a Bachelor of International Studies, Bachelor of Arts in Linguistics and Anthropology, and a Master of International Public Diplomacy. She studied over 10 languages from around the world to varying levels of proficiency. Carla has a special interest in endangered languages and is pursuing a career in language revitalization. Although she's only a recent graduate, she hopes to make a worthy contribution to the field. Thanks, Carla. Yay. <laughs> it's so good to have you with us. And um, I have to explain, I guess, how, how we met you um, yeah. because we're, again, super excited to have you here today for a couple of reasons. One is that you are a member of the Language Lovers AU community. And that was where we uh, came into contact with you first. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So we had met you a little while ago, probably about six months ago, right? Mm. Mm. Um, And then actually very recently, um, I had the pleasure of being on a panel with Carla um, at the Women in Language Conference. And it was was great. It was all, it was both of us with another Australian, Michelle Froller, and we got to talk about sort of the language learning world in Australia. And a part of that conversation um, was about Australian Indigenous languages, which was a a really interesting um, part of that discussion. And Carla has some some really good knowledge in this. And almost straight away, Penny and I both said, we have to get Carla on the podcast. We have to talk to her about this because um, we've actually had quite a lot of people over the last couple of years ask us whether we could bring somebody onto the podcast to talk about Indigenous languages. And um, there's actually quite a few different places that we've approached or a few different people that we had in mind. But um, to begin with, we were really hoping to have kind of an overall, a bit of an introduction to Australian Indigenous languages, because we know that there are lots of people out there who may not know really anything 
about the many, many Indigenous languages that exist in Australia and have existed in Australia for many, many years, for well, centuries as it is. Um, and we thought that you would be able to help give a little bit of an introduction, a bit of an Indigenous Languages 101, I guess, um, to a lot of our listeners out there. Oh, I would love to. <laughs> <laughs> so perhaps that's a good place to start, Carla. I mean, if you don't mind just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in the Indigenous Languages of Australia. Yeah, sure. So um, I just want to start with a bit of a disclaimer that I am not an Indigenous person, so I don't really speak for the experiences of the Indigenous population, but um, I come here today as a, a linguist and a, a language enthusiast, and I, I want to bring that take um, on Indigenous languages. So actually, I was born in the Philippines and immigrated to Australia when I was a baby, and I grew up on the Central Coast. I um, grew up speaking English in my household. I, um, with smatterings of Tagalog words and phrases, but I mean, not enough that I spoke it. <laughs> but um, like most Australians, most my language education started in high school with Japanese. And, and then I took that to university and um, I met my fiance and started learning Portuguese. And then I started learning Spanish and I kind of fell into this rabbit hole of learning languages and I couldn't stop. <laughs> um, but actually, my interest in Indigenous languages came sometime while I was doing my master's degree in international public diplomacy. And in that degree, we focused a lot on um, the UN and different agencies within the UN, Security Council, international law, um, human rights law, all this kind of thing. and. Um, Something that I encountered during my studies was the UNESCO Atlas of Endangered Languages. And I sort of just looked at it and thought that that, that was something that really spoke to me. Like when I was learning about other things in the UN, I was like, yes, this is interesting. But when it came to languages, and for me, that's just it's just so important and I wanted to to focus on that and and there are so many in Australia that are slowly dying out it's sad to say but that's that's the truth and um in my my studies i did a, a subject called comparative public policy and i looked i could choose any policy area in australia um that was failing and compare that with other countries and i chose um indigenous language education and i looked at how um they were doing language revitalization efforts in um, Hawaii, in Peru, in New Zealand. And after that, I decided, yep, this is where I want to go with this. I, I want to focus my efforts on indigenous languages. And so even if I was doing a master's, I went back and did another bachelor's in linguistics because I don't want to be one of those uh, policymakers that doesn't know the basics of the policies that they're making. <laughs> so, yeah, that's... That's how I kind of came to um, be really interested in um, endangered languages and um, specifically Australian um, Indigenous languages because, well, that's that's where I am. <laughs> so I think we have to take we have to take one one little step back, and that's in the acknowledgement of country at the beginning of this episode. So yeah. you actually did that in language, 
Um, could you tell everybody what language you did that acknowledgement of country in and how you you came to to learn and to speak some of that language too? Okay, so um, that's the Dark and Young language and that's the local language here of the Central Coast. Actually, it is in a, a revival stage, which means that um, there are actually no native speakers of the language, but they're trying to um, bring the language back um, with, uh, they have written resources of it. And um, so they're trying to bring that, um, write dictionaries, write a grammar, try to bring it into schools. Um, but actually, the, the way that I learned it was when I um, found out that I, I was indeed going to be speaking at Women in Language, I contacted our local Aboriginal Land Council and I asked them if it would be possible for me to learn how to do an acknowledgement of country in language because I thought it'd be appropriate speaking about Indigenous languages to be able to do such a thing. And I wasn't really sure if that was a possibility because I had never heard an acknowledgement of country in Dark and Young before. So I was really surprised and really happy when um, they contacted me and they're like, sure, here's here's how it's said. And, and if you want to come in and we can we can talk you through it. And, and that was really a great experience because I went in um, to the um, local land council and um, we went through pronunciation in detail because I wanted to get it really right. And then we just ended up chatting and chatting for like two hours, not just about language, but um, Aboriginal culture. And yeah, it was a great experience overall. Oh, that's amazing. What a great experience. And, and, What's your general your general feeling about non-Indigenous people being able to have those kind of experiences in language and being able to learn the Indigenous languages of our country? Have you encountered yeah. many other linguists or many other kind of language enthusiasts who've been able to learn some of our Indigenous languages? Mm-hmm. So I, I know that... Um... For some people, they might be a little bit hesitant to learn Indigenous languages as a non-Indigenous person because there, I mean, there is a lot of bad history with um, non-Indigenous people towards Indigenous people. So it's like they feel hesitant to kind of grasp onto that part of culture. But um, I found from speaking to Indigenous people that they're really happy to share that with people and um, happy when people are interested in that. Um, there, there are some who are a little bit more reserved, but um, from what I can tell, it is the minority. Um, there are many, many uh, non-Indigenous people who work with Indigenous communities um, with their languages, um, specifically like in the linguistics field. Um, many of the linguists who go to communities to record languages and um, help create grammars and do studies on them are um, typically non-Indigenous. Um, but obviously, when they do this kind of work, it's so important to do that in collaboration with the Indigenous communities. It's, it is kind of more damaging to go there and, and say, this is what we're going to do with your language, and you have to tell me all this. and. Um, it's important to talk to communities, see what it is that they want, see what they need, see what they're comfortable um, talking to non-Indigenous people with and um, 
that's really a lot of the language revitalization effort is this collaboration. Um, and you don't need to be an indigenous person to want to learn about these things because that's kind of how we're gonna help bridge the gap between indigenous and non-indigenous people. We speak about that so often in Australia that there's a, a gap between indigenous and non-indigenous people. And part of the way that we're gonna close that is learning the ways of the cultures um, that were originally here. How many, um, or do you have an idea of how many languages have been revitalized in that way in Australia? Because I know there are there were many hundreds of Indigenous languages that existed pre-colonization in Australia. I'm not sure of the exact number. Um, I feel like it was in the vicinity of maybe 300 or something like that. Helen, yeah, right? so they estimate about 290 to 360 languages. It's kind of hard to give a cold mm-hmm. hard number. Okay. But, um, um, but if, so of, of those languages, how many are still either being spoken today or are there efforts to revitalize um, at this point in time? Okay. So of that number, there's about 130 that are still spoken today, but some of those, maybe it's only the elders that speak it, it's not being passed on and um, they're not doing that well. Um, the, there's 12 languages that are still quite strong, as in they're spoken by all generations, they're taught in schools, people are using it out in the community, and there are um, publications in the language. Um, so 12 out of 300 plus is not a great amount. Um, most of the languages do have some kind of work on them so as they're in different stages of vitality there's different kinds of work so for the languages that there are very few speakers the most immediate work that needs to be done is recording the language Um, making sure that there are like uh, audio recordings of the language just writing and learning as much of the language as possible for languages that have a few more speakers, um, they're likely to be making more learning resources for schools because they already have that kind of um, foundation of the knowledge of the language to be able to make um, resources and books and things of that sort. And we've also got, there's a few languages that are um, undergoing like their revival um, stage, just like Dark and Young. And I'm not entirely sure of the the numbers um, in language revival, um, but I know that it is something that communities are looking towards because even though it's not a language that is heard um, on the streets or anything like that, it still holds such a strong um, part of their culture. Um, so I in that way, I would say that language revival and revitalization are almost as important as the other. You mentioned too just before about some of the languages which are the more kind of widely spoken languages which now have um, education programs through schools and even university in some instances. Mm -hmm. Um, You know it it 
that makes me that makes me really really happy to know that this is happening. Um, have you, I guess, got any insight into to what kind of those programs look like, or what the take up's been like, or what the feedback's been, or anything that you could shed some light on those kind of education programs in language? Yep. So. A lot of the the stronger languages are in the Northern Territory, and some of them have um, bilingual programs. So bilingual programs um, in the Northern Territory are kind of uh, start off mostly in Indigenous language and like slowly start to introduce English until it becomes like a 50-50 kind of setup. Um, In other places that teach language in school, it's like taught like a like a language class as as we do in schools. It's not that um, most of your schooling is in that language, but it's like a subject. Yeah. Um, and they've got those. I'm I'm sure they have it in at least most states. Um, there's a lot of them, and I know in Queensland, um, in New South Wales as well. They have some revival programs um, that are teaching languages, um, and that includes things like uh, Wiradjuri. Um, they were looking in one school to do it for dark and young. Um, so it does exist in schools, but it is still not really an overwhelming amount. Um, you you hear about them, like it's rare enough that it is important when you hear about it in the news. It's like, oh, this, this school is offering this. This is something new. This is something different and something important. Um, so yeah, they do have it in education, but could could be better. <laughs> um, in universities, um, I think there are about seven languages, uh, indigenous languages that are taught in universities. So um, that includes in uh, Charles Sturt University, Charles Darwin University, um, Curtin University, and there are a couple of others as well. So um, some of the programs that they offer are full majors that you can do, like you can major in Yongomatha, uh, which is a language from Northern Territory. Some of them are just individual subjects. Um, there's in Curtin University, they offer Nungar, which is kind of like a revival language. Um, the, the Nungar that they offer, Nungar is actually like a continuum of, of dialects. So it's but they've sort of just like put them together for this course. And um, you can actually access it for free through um, EDX, which is like one of those like online free course. You can pay for uh, like a recognized certificate, but you can also audit the course, which is really cool. Um, And yeah, some of the other university programs are for revival languages. That's so cool. Um, And great that that there is some that at least is quite widely available Mm -hmm. as well. Um, I guess like with it's kind of a problem with languages in general like the fact that we even for less like not even talking about indigenous languages but we struggle for languages other than English to get recognition and time in in schools so So, (laughs) you know even though um, you know indigenous languages also really should have an important role because they are so much of the part of the history of this of this land and this place Mm -hmm. where we all where we all live, um, but also that they, I suppose, carry the the history and and the stories as well, the culture of many of these 
many of these groups of people who originally were here. Um, and so it would be such, it feels like it is already such a loss that yeah. Australia has lost so many of those languages. Um, but then it feels particularly special and important that we should try and make an effort to understand and acknowledge the the ones that we still have with us. Yes, yeah, super sure. important. Mm. Um, Carla, I know that you've, you've talked about this already a little bit um, in the episode, but the difference between language revitalization and language revival. Yep. And I know this so, is an important, yeah, it's an oh. important point, isn't it? Just to kind of clarify, because it gets a bit confusing for that, like the lay person that, that, that I am anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. So um, language revitalization is used for languages that are still spoken. So it's to make sure that they are maintained and um, given more domains to speak. So a lot of the time when languages um, start to be reduced in speakers, it's because people are only using in the home. They're not really finding other places to use them. So with language revitalization programs, if you're bringing it to the school, it's like you're bringing more value and importance and it's you can use it just outside of your family. Um, it's giving that ability to maintain and pass it on to generations and, and just keep it going. Um, for language revival, a lot of the languages in Australia were lost um, when colonization happened a lot earlier um, than the languages that are um, undergoing language revival at the moment. So, um, and by loss, I mean, they don't have any native speakers, but it may be the case that there are still um, written recordings or audio recordings of the language. Um, and so language revival um, efforts normally have to involve um, kind of constructing how the language is. So they have to get as much as they can from the resources that are available, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the entire language was recorded because that is a pretty difficult task to start off with. And if that wasn't your goal when you started writing down things about the language, it's not necessary that you have captured a language in its entirety, which honestly I think would be pretty impossible because there are a lot of nuances in languages and things that maybe the person recording it was not aware of or just forgot about to write. <laughs> so revival does um, need a bit more effort before um, it actually gets start, started using the language in schools and things like that, because where there are gaps, usually they have to look at um, surrounding languages that are probably related to see um, what they can fill in or if there are like new words um, that they need to like create them um, just so like languages are dynamic. It, indigenous languages can change as much as English can or Spanish can. So you often need to add words to the language, especially for things like technology and all that. So um, there are in some ways, there are actually two ways that um, new words are added into languages for this kind of um, function. And one is 
and I think this happens with a lot of languages, is that it's just the borrowed word pronounced with the sounds of that language. And the other one would be like using the kind of morph morphology that exists within that language um, to kind of put together a new word. Um, yeah, so there is a distinction in like in the end, the hope would be that whether it's language revitalization or language revival, they can be taught in schools and and resources can be made with them. But just the beginning work is quite different. Do you think as a, as a country or even in our local kind of areas, we, we have goals related to Indigenous language, um, not acquisition, that's not the right word, but um, maintenance or, um, you know, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, do you think, do we have something we're trying to aim for in terms of languages that we want to revive and the number of speakers we want to see these languages mm -hmm. having and in terms of safeguarding the languages that exist in our country, do we have something that we're, we're trying to achieve? Does that exist? <laughs> um, on a nationwide scale, I would say no. <laughs> There's, it's, uh, it's very... Um, different from community to community obviously um in communities that do have a lot of um speakers or uh like a high um aboriginal demographic um it's super super important um for language revitalization um not so much in terms of numbers because communities may be small but in terms of that that language gets passed on um if it's a small number but children are speaking it, adults are speaking it, then that's great. If it's a large number, but it's only the grandparents who are speaking it, then that's, that's not a good sign. Um, so I think in those cases, the, the aim is just to keep children speaking it. So then it just continues the language. Um, in terms of language revival programs, I think, I'm not sure... Like I, I seem to see more often that people are like supporting and wanting Aboriginal languages to be taught, but I don't know that there's like a unified every every community should have this and get involved with this. Um, I think in a lot of cases, um, it is more so for like the indigenous people because it is such an intrinsic part of their culture and for that to be missing you you do feel a difference like I okay I'm not an indigenous person but I grew up here and I didn't like speak my heritage language growing up and I feel that that is a, a like a part of my identity that is kind of missing and but for me if if I wanted to go to the Philippines go back and learn and speak it and that that would be okay to do and I mean there's not that many resources but if I wanted to I could learn it but for people whose languages are needing revival they don't have that option they're already on the country where that language should be there there are no resources available so it's if they want to kind of like reclaim that part of their culture the, these revival um, programs are really necessary um, yeah <laughs> Well said. 
Yeah, totally. I um, actually read a really interesting book um, not that long ago by David Crystal um, called Language Death, um, which sounds like a very so dramatic language. Yes, death. it does. Um, and it was actually a fantastic book. It was really, really interesting and kind of gives you, it's not very long, um, and gives you a bit of a general overview of um, some of the concepts that you've just talked about. Like, for example, <laughs> the fact that you can have languages that ostensibly seem to have lots of speakers but if all of the speakers are aging then um you know it can still be a kind of an endangered language because it's all about making sure that the the younger generations are kind of continuing to pass it on but interestingly um on a totally um in a, in a different place um I had heard that Australian Indigenous languages that are well again for want of a better term dead um, are often called sleeping beauties in yeah. um, in Australia. Is that right? Yeah. So they prefer to call them sleeping languages or yeah, sleeping beauties because this language death, it does sound very final and very like dramatic. Um, <laughs> but um, sleeping languages tend to be preferred because there is the chance, like, as, as I said, with, like, when I was talking about language revival, if you have resources, you can, like, so to say, like, bring it up from the dead, but, or, like, awaken it. So um, it's, it tends to be the preferred one because um, it just doesn't give that finality. And when people think of language death, they might think as well that the culture is dead, but the people are still here. And that's um, very much not the case that they've all died out. Um, the cu culture is still here. It's still living. It's just that part of their culture, which is sleeping. We hope you're enjoying this chat with Carla. We covered a lot of ground in this interview. So we've decided to split the conversation into two parts. So the second part of Carla's interview will be launched on Language Chats in the coming fortnight. So please make sure you're subscribed to Language Chats so you don't miss out on future episodes. Um, as always, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook, languagelovers.au. Please also feel free to join our Facebook community. Um, and as always, thank you so much for listening and we look forward to hanging out with you again next episode. Thanks again.